You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and we are joined today by the king of retail investing himself. His name is Abby. Thank you for having me. Your Highness. Manish. <laughs> Your Highness, you just call me? Thank Your you. Your Highness, because yeah, you. you're the king. The king of paper hands. That's a good point. That's a good yeah. point to even think about that. And, hey, man. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, no pressure, no diamonds. All right. That's all. That's what. That's what retail investors have to deal with all the time, and I'm one of them. <laughs> well, we're we're both retail investors, I would say, and and that's what we're talking about today is understanding this mythical creature that uh, is called the retail investor. And uh, you know, Abby, it's the retail investor is really like the eighth wonder of the world, or something. It's like. You hear about it all the time. You hear people talk about it. It seems to be this like mysterious force that moves the markets up and down and in weird ways. But nobody can really seem to understand it or predict what it's going to do next. <laughs> I love that you're calling retail investors it. It, it. Yeah, it it's like a swarm Yo, if, of fish, you know? You never know what the, where the swarm's heading next. Well, you know, I've, I've seen them in movies and I've read about them in books. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, man. Retail investors, they are... They are among us. They are among us. They are one of us. I am one of them. It's, you know, it's funny when I was... Ape. When we were... Strong. <laughs> Ape strong together. Yeah. Together. together strong. There you go. Ape strong together. It, you know, it's funny when I, was, when I was, like, we were talking about this and I was like, kind of thinking about it. I was like, it's almost like an anthropological study, you know? Like, you're going to dig up artifacts, you know, 200 years from now and, like, you know, there's there was a, a magical event called GME that the public was excited. You know, like it's it's really trying to understand the retail investor is trying to understand what goes through the mind of the public every day. But instead of a artifact that you're going to uncover, it's going to be a Netflix suggestion in about three months. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the retail investor is going to learn about what happened with GME. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So. You know, a topic of discussion for today is we're going to just try to really understand three core things. And I think this will be a fun one, but we're going to try to get into who are retail investors and and what defines them and how we think about them. Uh, Secondly, what are the common mistakes that retail investors make and why are they mistakes? And then third uh, and most importantly is how do we avoid these, uh, you know, types of behavior for ourselves in the future? and you know, to really kick it off, we have to start by saying the retail investor is us, right? So we always like, you know, people hear it as like in like a disparaging way, the retail investor is usually when something bad or stupid is happening. But really, like we are all retail investors, We, you know, and, and even as we get into later on, sometimes what we define as institutional investors, I mean, at the end of the day, they're still people. So they're still governed very much 
by the same human emotions that all of us are governed by. So I think it's really important to understand that when we say retail, it's a super broad category of people. Um, and it, and the types of behaviors and mistakes that we see can really apply far and beyond what you would consider to be the retail pool of people. For sure. And what a lot of people, I mean, look, um, I agree with everything that you're saying, but to, to define like a retail, the way that I would define a retail investor is more just like an individual investor or a non-professional investor, right? Um, somebody who's risking their own capital, I would really say is a retail investor. Uh, and as an institutional investor, I would say is somebody who is managing um, other people's money. So OPM, right? So you got to take into consideration that a lot of these retail investors are put to, are putting up a lot more risk. So they should be doing a lot more de like due diligence themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, but sometimes they don't. I would say 95% of the time they don't. And, and, it's not, and it's not that they don't want to. I mean, maybe some don't want to, but a lot of them don't know how to. Right, right. That's that's a fair point. So, so look, that's a great line in the sand you just drew, which is retail is typically managing their own money. Institutional is typically managing other people's money. But and larger amounts of capital, too. Larger amounts of capital. But I want to point out that there's a pretty huge section kind of, you know, between those two goalposts, which is that, you know, you can have millions of dollars, even tens of millions of dollars of your own money under management, right? And be running what we call a family office. Um, but really, you are still a retail investor, right? I mean, you know, we have friends who we talk to, friends of the podcast who might have, you know, millions of dollars or even more um, into a company. And yet, they don't necessarily have any special privileges above, you know, just an average investor. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And I mean, like, if you look at it from like a, um, a definition, I guess like a, I want to use the word institutional perspective, but not really because we're trying to define an institutional investor, but typically uh, institutional investors, you know, they, they get different allocations when it comes to like new issues, they get preferential treatment, they get lower fees. And it's strange to see when you see such large amounts of capital and discount trading accounts, um, they don't necessarily get that same level of, of treatment, right? Even though, you know, sometimes, for example, early, sta early stage cannabis, when it was um, uh, quite nascent back in, what, 2003? 16 i would say mm -hmm. a lot of the capital that came in was retail and that's where a lot of retail investors got their edge up or, or like yeah got had a leg up to like even canadian institutional investors right and why why is that it was just uh so like you've got like retail brokers right in canada that's what we call them they're investment advisors they're registered by iroc they would fund a lot of these deals. They would fund a lot of these companies. They would source them. They would put them together. Um, and it was just given that that's usually, typically how small cap used to work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, right? and, and, but, but at its core, it was probably because the institutional money just wasn't there yet. They weren't ready to write those, you know, 10, 10, 10 15, $20 million. Yeah, so you exactly. had to go raise them piece by piece from smaller investors. Right, exactly. Or you'd have to go contact a broker who is you know, a professional, but they're still considered retail, right? They could be managing billion, like even, and I know some, some teams down in Canaccord that manage a billion dollars, but they're still retail and non-institutional. Right. right. So and, it and becomes such a gray area. How yeah. do you define who a retail investor is? How do you define who uh, a uh, institutional investor is? Because 
like literally 20 seconds ago, I said that, you know, typically institutional investors um, manage other people's monies and retail investors manage their own capital. But, you know, you have a whole network of investment advisors who deal specifically with retail uh, people and manage retail capital, and they are classified as retail investors. Yeah. So the, the point we're getting to here, and hopefully you can appreciate is that there really is no one definition, right? But I, I like Abby's kind of line in the sand of managing your own money versus managing other people's money. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go as far as to say, like, if you're not a hedge fund or a pension fund or a something fund, you are retail. And you could have a million dollars in a stock. You could have $10 million in a stock and you are still retail. You might yeah, get. Yeah, you could even yeah, like, go as far as saying wealth management is still typically retail. Right. And again, you can get into the nuance of how things are set up and stuff like that. But the the key part is when people say retail, it's a very broad brush. It encompasses a lot of different people in that retail umbrella. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that's just the first point to be cognizant of. The second is, you know, typically when you hear about retail, it's because there's some kind of problem. Right. So so GME, I think, is a, is a good example of, you know, you hear about it on the news because it's like, hey, something weird is happening or something strange is happening. And we're worried about people who are going to get themselves hurt, right? So uh, now you might agree or disagree with that, but that's kind of the context in which they're using retail. So they're using retail to be like synonymous with like Robin Hood. And that being that, hey, somebody who maybe doesn't have a lot of money and are throwing money into something without really understanding how it works. Um, and and the people saying this, you know, on CNBC or whatever, are really looking down on on the people. So it's like retail is like a dirty word in this context, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And that the, does make sense, yeah. And so so usually when we hear retail, we we think about it in a negative way, but it's just to start by broadening it up and saying it's not necessarily negative. In fact, um, how I would even go further to say that you know the key distinction I think between you know being you know within the retail class. Being, you know, uh, you know, retail investors actually have some advantages, which we'll get into. But being part of that, you know, um, I don't know what to call it, but being being sort of part of the, you know, retail investors who succeed, the difference between them and the ones who seem to fail, I think, is a couple of really key things. So to me, it really comes down to level of knowledge and understanding, because if we think about this classical classic retail that we hear about. You know, it's typically people who are uninformed and, you know, sometimes almost seem like blissfully uninformed. They don't have a desire to learn, but they do have a desire to get rich quickly. And there will always be people like this. This will always be part of the human spirit. Uh, And, you know, Abby and I, we both started off this way, right? You start Mm -hmm. off with the desire to to make money, but not necessarily the knowledge of how to make money, right? And that can be a very dangerous combination. Yeah, absolutely. And it could get even more dangerous when you go to school for it and you walk out of it and you still don't know how to make money. Yeah, and you have a business degree and you think that means you know something about, you know, or even worse, you have a finance degree. Yeah, sure. Sure. And you think that means that, you know, you have some kind of edge in the market when in reality, you know, you know very little about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, another fun tidbit is I sometimes feel the, level of knowledge is like inverse to the level of confidence. So sometimes people who just got started know almost nothing will be online talking like, you know, they're Gordon Gecko or something. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like they'll be talking about how they know X, Y, Z is going to happen. And this company is the best and this company sucks. And, you know, one of the key things is when people are, you know, when people are uninformed and they see other people who have a high degree of confidence, um, they sort of, they take that as like, oh, I should listen to this person because they sound so convincing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing um, you learn to kind of weed out as you get more experience is you start to really second guess everything you're hearing and try to dig deeper into understanding why somebody is saying that as opposed to just taking them at face value. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's a great way to start, you know, asking the right questions. And that's a great way to f- get a clearer picture of what's going on. Um, I mean, maybe maybe you're gonna you're gonna touch on this, but I'd say the exact opposite of that is information paralysis, where you ask too many questions and there's you have too much information, you just don't end up making a decision. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Abby. And you know, I'll give you a quick little anecdote in real estate, which is that um, you know, commercial real estate, you know, we deal with millions of dollars at a time, right? So um, if somebody's gonna buy something, they need to have you know one, two, three plus million dollars in cash just to put down as a down payment, and What's, what's been fascinating to me is to see that just because somebody's doing a $10 million deal doesn't mean that they're like, you know, 10 times more informed than the person doing the million dollar deal. Um, it, and, you know, obviously the smaller the deal is, the more people can participate in it, right? Um, which typically drives the price up. But what, you, you know, what you find sometimes with these bigger deals is not that the person is more sophisticated. But sometimes that they just have, you know, to your point, Abby, they're not they're not always stuck with analysis paralysis. So if if, you know, if uh, analysis was the number one key to making money, then analysts would rule the world. But that's not actually what happens. In fact, it it's sometimes um, the people who, you know, can can just kind of get a rough idea of it, have a good feeling about it and are willing to take the risk that ultimately get the reward. Um, now they can go the other way too. Let's keep that in mind. But that's just something I've learned a lot in real estate is that, you know, when, when you meet somebody and you, you kind of get a feel for them, you'd be surprised sometimes it's not always the person who's the most savvy who ends up, you know, making the most money in a deal. Yeah. I mean, I'd say most of the times that ends up being the case. I can give you an example of, you know, where I've, where I've done a couple of deals where I've put some of my, um, friends in who are like accredited investors and mm-hmm. we, we did private placements and uh, I ended up selling a lot earlier because I had a very well-defined like sell, like a, like a sell strategy. Sure. Another one of my buddies ended up holding for a lot longer and he made like three, four X what I would have made mm-hmm. because the stock continued to run up. Right. So that was, um, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> There's really no other way to put it. But, you know, we'll we'll get into this a little bit later. That is kind of the mark of the professional is the discipline, right? Is, and when we, when we break it down to its key components, I think what you'll see today, the difference between sort of, you know, thinking like, you know, kind of a, a more novice investor versus a more experienced investor, it really comes down to a couple of key things, right? Now, these things are pretty simple. Doesn't mean that they're easy, but they're pretty simple. And, and, you know, it comes down to really your mentality, your emotional temperament, um, and your, your time horizon in terms of how you invest. And, and we'll get into that. But, you know, last point on this is, is I would say that there are actually some advantages to being a retail investor, right? And this industry, cannabis, 
is the best example of that. I mean, we are in an industry right now where we are U.S. focused and we're buying stocks that are on the CSE and OTC that true institutional investors can't even really touch yet. And even they're, they're starting to dip their toe in the water, some of the hedge funds and stuff like that. And even they are a little skittish on when they're, you know, doing these kind of, you know, 25, 50, $100 million deals. But, you know, they can see that there's an opportunity there. If uplisting was announced tomorrow, they would get involved in a larger way. So our ability to not have to worry about these, you know, weird federal illegality and compliance issues, that is a huge advantage. It definitely is. It definitely is. It allows us to, it gives us access to more investments than just right now, which is a very, again, an anomaly with cannabis, than typically uh, institutional investors would get access to. But you do have to look at the names that these institutional investors are getting into, right? They are still being very cautious. And a lot of these names that they're getting into are actually reporting and filing uh, and doing audits as if they were already listed on the big exchanges to sort of appeal yeah, to these right. investors. That's a fair they're point. Voluntarily they're, they're, like, disclosing this information. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, to be SEC registered is, you know, you need gap financials. So, you know, GTI is there. TrueLeave is there. Um, you know, I know a lot of others are working on it, right? But uh, that's a fair point. And GTI did a big raise, like $130 million or something like that, um, with one investor who was unnamed. But uh, that one investor, uh, you know, it was a it was a true um, it was a true right. But I'm saying that the way the raise was done, it was done in the U.S. and it was done through the SEC. So it was it was really more of a U.S. style equity raise than than what we're typically uh, used to on the Canadian side. So Mm -hmm. so to your point, it's because they have already registered with the SEC and have an S1 file that they were able to do that. So Mm -hmm. last point on this is that. um, Oh, sorry. Retail uh, also has this uh, this great ability that we don't get judged by anybody but ourselves on our portfolio. So, you know, when you're a hedge fund manager, when you're a whatever fund manager, you have to month by month or quarter by quarter report, you know, if you're up or down or, you know, what your performance is. Mm-hmm. And this actually makes them, um, you know, their time horizon has to be a lot shorter because- you know, think about the the volatility that we're able to stomach, theoretically, you know, if we don't sell, you know, something can go down 20% every month, and then it can, you know, go up, right? It can, like, like cannabis literally went down for almost a year and a half, and then it bottomed and started going up. If you're a hedge fund manager, you know, you can't stomach having to report every quarter that you're losing this much money. At some point, your investors are going to pull the plug on you and get their money back. So mm-hmm. we don't have that problem. It's our money. You know, you only have to answer to yourself. Um, so that actually is a huge advantage if we use it correctly. And you know what? I'll add one more point to that about the, the, about the institutional investor. Um, they don't have the same motive, uh, motives as you do. So, for example, Manish, you make money on capital gains or income. Hedge fund managers and hedge funds make money on fees. Mm. So – two very, very, very different um, motives in terms of getting compensated, right? Totally. I mean, obviously, the better the hedge fund does, the more clients they get, the more fees they go, there is a direct correlation. But it's not like if the hedge fund goes to zero, it's not like the fund manager loses all his money. Right. And, and put another way, um, you know, they get paid on AUM, so assets under management. 
And so their goal is usually just get as big as possible. Exactly. So they want to get to, you know, they want to take 1 billion to 10 billion. So they get 10 times the fees, but they're not doing 10 times the work. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they grow those assets from 1 billion to 10 billion. In fact, it sometimes means the opposite. Like, exactly. If they're post, like, if they start posting really big losses, they're going to like bleed clients like crazy. So for them, they would rather have something that's a more concerned. I'm speaking generally here, but if you have what you want to avoid is having a really big loss in your portfolio, because, you know, if, if clients look up one day and see that the whole market's up, you know, 5% for the year and you're down 5%, but it's because you invested in these volatile cannabis names that are just experiencing, you know, regular volatility, people are going to shoot first and ask questions later. And so, mm-hmm bringing it back to this idea that we are all retail, right? Even though this fund is being managed by professionals who are, you know, super smart or whatever, the people who will, who are holding the purse strings are still people and are still, you know, you would think logically, well, if this person's down 5%, you know, maybe we, you know, maybe we have to let them correct, right? Because this is just, just typical variance, but no, people might pull their money out at that point and then the fund never has a chance to recover. Yeah. Right. So just something to think about that retail is not always disadvantaged. The final, the final metaphor before we get into the actual mistakes, um, you know, I find what's very helpful to think about is like a poker analogy. And we've used poker a lot of times, but you know, when you sit down at the poker table, uh, not online, I mean like real in-person table, you get all kinds of people there. Right. And, um, so if you want to think about institutions, institutions can, you can kind of like a hedge fund, especially you might think of that, like the shark, like the professional poker player. Right. And then everybody else who's not professional, we're all retail, but there's a difference between, you know, somebody who kind of sits there patiently, you know, waiting for the right hand, reading the table versus the person who stumbles in, you know, six drinks deep, you know, who just like lost a bunch of money on roulette and wants to play poker now. Like uh-huh. those are two very different kind of retail investors sitting at the table. However, just because the shark is a shark and has all this experience doesn't mean that they're going to win every hand. In fact, if you sit and watch a lot of times the um, kind of new player who stumbles to the table will can actually do quite well, especially if they play more aggressively um, because people, some of the smarter investors are kind of sitting back and trying to feel them out try to see what their pattern is and what these people are doing. And they're waiting for the opportune time to actually make a big move against them. Okay. That's, that, that's a, that's a, a very interesting analogy. I learned this by the way, when I started playing poker years ago and I was like, Oh, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. <laughs> I'm really like kicking ass here. And then you learn later, like now oh, that guy, you know, who was side eyeing you, He's actually just taking a note of when you were bluffing, when you were bluffing, when you were bluffing. You bluff at the wrong hand. He takes you for everything you have. Right. Right. But it's to say that in the short term, you know, people who are doing crazy things can still perform quite well. Right. But it's only, again, that old quote, when the tide comes in, you can see who's swimming naked. So, yeah, just something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and and on that poker analogy, we've also chatted about this one before. It's like, you know, sometimes when someone first just sits at the table, um, and you don't know who they are, you might think that they're the best poker player ever. Meanwhile, they're exactly. just literally 
you know, they're, they're just getting lucky or, you know, they're, they're, because they're being so irrational, you're like, oh man, this like, you know, your, your psychology kicks in being like, this guy knows something I don't know. This is why he's right. behaving the way he's being, or she's behaving the way that they, like, she's behaving, you know? Right. Well, the, the, and the prudent thing is like, to go back to this idea of discipline, like the, the uh, professional investor has discipline. So just because you think somebody is doing something or you think something, you know, somebody's bluffing, if they just sat down and you don't know, you mm-hmm. will actually kind of uh, you're it's prudent to to wait and see Like you think they're bluffing, but you're not going to call them out right away. You're not going to go after them right away because you want to see if your hunch is correct. Right. So similarly, you know, when crazy things are happening in the market, um, you know, maybe investors jump on it or maybe they kind of wait to see how it's going to play out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think. I think a little bit of that has happened with the Reddit trade. We'll get into a little bit later. But so to get into some of the the most common retail mistakes that I see made, and let's start with the poker analogy, it's not understanding the fundamentals of the game. Okay, so this is, you know, probably the the number one sin, you know, and and to me it's a cardinal sin. It's getting involved for the wrong reasons and getting excited for the wrong reasons at the wrong time. So I'll give you an example. A lot of times new investors or people who don't have a lot of money, they come in and they want to double their money or more, right? Mm-hmm. They, they usually get involved like Bitcoin, for example, people get involved because they just heard a story about how their friend or their friend's friend went five X on something, right? A, a great example of this is, um, somebody who's a friend of a friend said, Hey, I heard you're um, interested in cannabis. Like I heard you do cannabis investing. I'd like to get involved because I have a friend who's been doing it for years and told me to get in and, and I didn't. And he just told me for Christmas, he bought his girlfriend a Porsche. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't from his cannabis gains. It was from his job. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny story is we dug in later and we found out that his friend was actually living and working in California um, where his friend was like an illegal broker of, um, of like cannabis products. So like he would broker black market product and get like a really healthy clip for it, you you know, because if you can imagine in the black market, you know, you don't know who to trust. So a broker is very valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, he's clipping these huge commissions on these pretty significant sales of illegal product. And it's like, yeah, he probably bought that Porsche in all cash for you know for for his girlfriend, right? Like, or maybe it was payment instead of yeah, exactly. So he couldn't collect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, but it it was just a really funny. Now the the guy actually ended up becoming friends with a really cool guy um, who wanted to get involved. But what it was just a funny example of that's what got his attention. You know, after all this time. He got excited because somebody he knew was able to go buy, you know, a fancy car, right? And that's a lot of what you'll see with retail. They get excited by the idea of making a lot of money quickly, and they're sort of willing to overlook the how it happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I, I think that's a... <laughs> That, that's a great reason to get involved i think everybody has their, their motivation <laughs> to get involved i hey if, if somebody was like hey man like i just bought a it's like that wolf of wall street scene right jonah hill runs into Leonardo dicaprio's character and it's like you know the car sitting outside and talks to you about that people yeah, get in yeah. for for whatever reason that they possibly get in for um 
but I do agree with you. I think that mindset is actually detrimental to your long-term success as a retail investor because people don't understand the amount of risk that you're taking in order to double your money. Well, or just in general, people, when they come in with that mindset, you get blinded by it. Like there's nothing wrong with wanting to make huge returns. I mean, that's that's the game. But if that's all you see, you can be willing to overlook a lot of stuff. And typically you know, how that story ends is not, oh yeah, I also made 5X my money. It's usually I lost everything I put in. Right, yeah. So that that's why it's dangerous, right? It um, definitely is, it definitely is. And like, I think, what was it? Didn't Warren Buffett say this, where it's like, if somebody's selling you a stock, be very careful. Right, or, or always ask what's in it for this person. Why is it yeah. selling this thing to me? Exactly. Right? So exactly. Like, I think what people miss sometimes is like, you know, the bigger you get, the more money people have, you know, if somebody's really wealthy, they typically consider like seven to eight percent a good return on their capital, right? Right. But if somebody's remember, we've talked about this in the past before the Warren Buffett strategy. It's like if somebody's really wealthy, seven to eight percent of their capital is probably a significant amount of capital in terms of dollars. Yeah, it could be huge. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That's a good point. So when you have a smaller amount of money, by necessity, you want to double it because you know if you have a thousand bucks and you make seven percent, that's seventy dollars. That's, yeah. you know, not enough to, you know, cover your trading commissions probably, right? Mm -hmm. So exactly. that's a fair point. But so one thing I see too, in terms of not understanding the fundamentals, people often equate share price to market cap. And like I've seen investors, they love stocks priced under $1 because they feel like this is a petty stock and there's a lot of room to run. Oh uh, man, I got, I've got a great story for that one after. Please. Please go. Oh, ahead. there's a company called FSD Pharma, and a friend of mine was trading it. it. Had I think it had like a billion shares outstanding at the time, and it was trading at like nine cents. And I was like, "Buddy, this is not a penny stock." And he's like, "But it's trading at nine cents." I was like, "Man, no, it has like a nine hundred million dollar market cap." And like we had, right. to, like, I had to explain to him like, you know, how many shares were outstanding, and then you have to multiply it by that. And then right, he's like, right. "Okay, well, what does that mean?" It's like, "Well, this is actually equates to a company like Bell Canada, like or like not maybe not necessarily Bell Canada because Bell Canada is worth right, more. but nine hundred million is a big number. That would be like yeah, 90, that is not a penny stock money. under yeah. any circumstance. Like a right. penny stock to me is like has to be like less than like fifty million. Yeah, even or, less or, than that. Right, it could be a has to be a small market cap. But your your mm -hmm. point is what I was getting to is that people don't look at the diluted share counts. I saw somebody the other day. Talking about Cansortium, look, I like Cansortium. I'm an investor, um, but you know they they were like, well, this is the price. It's only eighty cents, so like it still has a lot of room to go. And then they actually said in another post, and it only has hundred and fifteen million shares outstanding. So it has like an eighty million dollar market cap. And I was like, well, actually, it's probably closer to three hundred million shares outstanding. Nobody even really knows, honestly, because it's such a mess of a capital structure. But like. You just look. So the company is two and a half times more expensive than what this guy thought. But I bet you if I went to him and said, hey, FYI, just so you know, it's actually 300 million shares. You know, would he now think of it as two and a half times more expensive than what the number he has in his mind? I don't know. No, he'd probably screenshot Yahoo Finance and say, no, the market cap is 150. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he would do. <laughs> realistically yeah, I, speaking right and, and like literally it's not that hard to find the diluted share count like to abby's point the basic share count is on yahoo finance but if you just like literally open any financial statement and scroll to the bottom of one of the pages it says basic share count and then fully diluted share count and the mda 
um, always has, if you just Google outstanding, sorry, if you just search in the document outstanding, it always has something that says fully diluted um, shares outstanding. And it'll give you the full, full number. Now that can include warrants and converts and stuff like that. But that management is only... options and stuff as well, right? You got to remember totally, to include totally. employee options. Totally. So the company could get money for those in return. So that you know, to be fair, but still, if if you have a company that has like a lot of these companies have these these huge convert structures, so your your basic share count might be like fifty million shares, but your fully diluted might be like a hundred or more. So like from a valuation perspective, you think the company's value, you know, you think it's only half of what it's really valued at. I mean, that is a huge difference in valuation. It's massive. It's it's literally just double the cost. It's double two, the cost. It's more than doubling your account. Totally. And if somebody said to you, um, hey, like and, and the weird thing is, because the way the brain works is like you you do an action and then you kind of find a reason to justify it later. So this'll happen I'm Abby, I'm sure this happened to you a lot where you know you buy a stock, you're like you have all these reasons for liking it. <laughs> One week later, two months later, whatever, those reasons haven't panned out, but you find some other reason to sort of hold on to it and not sell it. What do you mean? Like I justify my purchase or? Yeah, you, you have some re- like wacky way of backwards rationalize. I'm not just saying you, I'm saying everybody. Like you have a way of backwards rationalizing what you did. So you're like, okay, I bought it because I thought, you know, New York was going to legalize and then something, you know, didn't happen. But I'm going to hold it anyway because of X, Y, Z reason. Man, you give me way some more credit than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if I buy it and it hasn't doubled, I'm like, I'm out. This sucks. I call you, yeah. Manish, and I say, this is the worst recommendation ever. Why'd you tell me about this name? <laughs> yeah. It sucks. Exactly. exactly. Fair enough. Then, yeah. Fair enough. But but so my point just being that, um, that you know, fully diluted, fully diluted share count is like so, so important to look at. And if you don't, if you know, if you don't understand it, um, or you're not even aware of it, you could be paying many more times or a much different price than you think you are. So it's just mm-hmm. something to be aware of. So yeah. on the next point to that, this idea of you know not looking at financials or not digging deep into the information that matters, and it, it's kind of this weird dynamic where the retail investor will spend hours hours reading due diligence on like reddit searching twitter reading yahoo finance comments um they'll do like all of the legwork except actually looking at the filings and like it's kind of baffles me because it's like it's not that they're not afraid to put in work they will put in the work like you know they will spend hours and hours and days and days on reddit um but then they just they won't read the actual filings for themselves or listen to conference calls. They'd rather read the headline and then read the comments and let somebody else tell them what to think. Well, so okay, so you you just hit it on the head there. And I've talked to a lot of retail investors and I've asked questions like that. I've said, well, why don't you just look at you know why don't you just pull the financials? And somebody actually gave me a, a very um, I guess honest answer. And they're like, you know what? I read these financials and I don't know what they mean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we go through them and they're like, to me, they just mean numbers. Like, okay, the company has this much cash. So what? When you read a credit post, it'll be like, the company has this much cash. It means they can do this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it paints the narrative for them. And so when you're reading it, usually when you're reading a post or even a press release or uh, a really well-written article, a promotional article, 
there's already a narrative in mind that it's a very rosy narrative and they can take those net numbers even if they could be negative numbers and sort of paint it when you look at just financials or mdnas um you don't get that same narrative you just get like facts you just get bam 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 right it's like looking at like a baseball card for example if you look at the back of a baseball card it'll just tell you like you know how many home runs this person had it's like you know how many uh, how many pitches the, the pitcher has thrown but it won't actually tell you like what that means right and, and sorry take that analogy a step further it's like the difference between um reading a player's stats right versus mm-hmm. listening to the player's agent tell you about how great the player is exactly right exactly that agent their job is to sell. They are going to find a way to pick out that one. You know, you take the worst player, they're going to find some way to find some stat that makes them look good and gets right. can get you excited, right? If they're good at their job. If a company cannot find a way to spin some kind of negative news, then they're probably not, you know, a public company, right? Like a public company's <laughs> job is to find a way to spin things positively. And look, there's a lot of good stuff happening in a lot of these companies. But, you know, Abby, to your point, you cannot reasonably expect a company to shine a light on something negative that is happening. Right. It's just not going to happen. So that's why it's so important. So Abby, your point's well taken. People go, well, why would I read the filing? I don't know how to read it. But then I would turn around and say, well, why not invest some of the hours you're spending on due diligence to improving your ability to read these things? Like, you it's not rocket science. I understand that if you're starting from scratch, it can be confusing and it can be scary. But like retail investors, their biggest one of the biggest mistakes they make is having a very short time horizon and a very short attention span. So they get excited at precisely the wrong time when everybody's getting excited. And we saw that, by the way, in our industry in February, when the GameStop, um, you know, short covering madness and the weed stock gang um, came out of nowhere and was pushing the LP prices to the moon. That's when everybody started getting you know, really back into the industry and the thing started getting really frothy again. Mm-hmm. And that to me was scary. That wasn't good. That was something I was worried about. But, you know, then it dies down and people sort of go away and move on to the next thing, right? And that's one of the problems is it's a it's a, a short attention span and it's always looking for the next thing. But if you actually learn how to read financials, you can figure out for yourself what you're reading. And don't expect that, you know, because you buy some book or because you start like, you know, reading Investopedia, you're going to learn this all at one time. No, this is a journey. You're going to learn this over years. And last point on that is, you know, I started investing in this industry in 2017. I took it a lot more seriously in 2019. And every year I feel like keep honing my skills better and better and better. And it's an additive process. That makes sense. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's very important for people to do that. And I, and I think you started it the right way, right? Like you you learn, like you said, it's an additive process. So it's something you're, you're every time or every time you look at a, a financial statement or as you start doing more and more due diligence, you know, you start picking up different nuances. You start picking up different things, right? Totally, totally. You Like when you, when I read something, Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I'm reading. My first que- my first instinct is to like, okay, can I print this out, make some notes on it, 
you know, can I go do some research and, and like, it's, there's a world of information out there to learn about how to read a financial statement. You don't need a master's degree or a PhD just to understand some basic concepts about what is gross margin, what is operational cash flow. Like these are things people can understand themselves, but a mm-hmm. lot of retail investors just don't do it. Now, if you want to be really kind, you would hope that people don't do it in the early stage of their career, then they maybe lose money or they make mistakes and then they learn. But one thing you'll find, which is unfortunate, but it's reality, there's always that person who is just willing to step up, take a big swing, and then, you know, when they lose, they they'll just say, "Oh, this game is rigged. The market sucks. This is all BS." Yeah. And they never want to actually learn and kind of put the onus on themselves of how can I improve next time? Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, like, that's that's something that every retail investor does need to do, right? 100%. And I, and 100%. I would say the most dangerous, I don't know if this is going to be on the agenda later down, going down the line, but I'd say one of the most dangerous things that a lot of, I've noticed from a lot of retail investors um, is that when they're doing really well, right, when, when they're, they're their picks are working out, their portfolio is doing really well, they do less and less due diligence. Oh, for sure. And that's like the time to start doing more. It's like, it's really to figure out why did this stock do well? Right. Right. I, I Just mean, as, you, as why did it do bad? Look, it, it's hard to learn that much from a big win. When you, you know, when you step up and, and you buy a lottery ticket um, and, you know, you hit it on the first try, right? You, you don't think to yourself like, oh, that was a mistake. Right. No, well, you ask yourself, why did I win? You go, you map out what convenience store you went to, and, <laughs> and you replicate that process day after day until you do it again. Now we know when Abby wins the lottery, he's going to buy the convenience store. <laughs> exactly. No, but I mean, obviously, you can't equate this to like winning the lottery, right? Right. That's a, that's a fair point. I just, I said, I literally said that because one of the next points I have is the lottery ticket mentality. And that is that. You know, when to your point, Abby, when things are going up, when everything's going up, people get really excited and they go, look, I don't know what's going on in this mushroom space, but people are going 10x or 100x all around me. Why don't I just buy five things and hopefully one of them goes 10x and then it's worth my time? Yeah, exactly. So why bother? Why waste time, Abby, on this due diligence thing? Why not just buy some lottery tickets and hopefully one of them will hit? Or just grab a Scrabble bag and pull out three letters. There you go, right? And, yeah. and just figure out what, what's going to hit, right? So now there, there's a um, a key point here. It reminds me of a, a book called um, Irrational, I think it's called Irrational Rationality, or sorry, Rational Irrationality. And uh, honestly, I, I didn't read the book, but I watched a lecture that the, the, the author gave. And what, he, what the theme of the book is, people make all these weird irrational decisions, Um you know, for example, they'll they'll vote on, you know, president based on who they want to have a beer with, right? Mm-hmm. Not who they think could be better at the job. And what he goes what this guy goes into describing is like, look, that seems very irrational, but here's why it's actually there's some method to the madness. So in that example, you know, the president is somebody who you're gonna see on TV for the next four years. You're gonna right. be inundated with the president for four years. So if it's somebody who really annoys you. You're going to be really annoyed every time you see them for four years. But if it's somebody who you have a high degree of likability, who you'd want to have a beer with them, they seem friendly, then even if they're not the best president, you know, there's there's that degree of, hey, I'm going to see them again and again for a couple of years. 
that's who I'll vote for because, you know, at least I enjoy, you know, I don't, I don't get pissed off every time I see them on TV. Right. Right. So that's that's funny that you mentioned that. So this is funny when I was one of my first jobs, um, I was working for like one of the schedule one banks here in in Canada Mm -hmm. and, uh, we were in, we were on, on like, uh, uh, the wealth management arm and, uh, um, one of the guys who was pretty high up in the bank, he used to really he he despised Janet Yellen's voice, like he really <laughs> did like it, and he would mute her. He would actually mute her when she would come, and I'd be like, "Isn't this like stuff that you like want to hear?" And he's like, "You know what? I'm just gonna wait for the transcript, and I will just read it." <laughs> That's hilarious, but at yeah. least that, at least he re- read the transcript. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did read he the highlights read? of the transcripts that was sent out. <laughs> he got us to read the transcripts. Can we please read this and summarize yeah, it for me? Exactly. That, that's actually what happened. Yeah, I believe it. So, so look, that's the the point being though, like this irrational, uh, rational irrationality is that although people sometimes do these crazy things or things that you know seem crazy, there is some method to the madness, right? So, for example, like this lack of due diligence, people figure, well, if I'm just throwing you know a little bit of money at it. It's not worth me spending all the time and energy to do it, right? And there, I, I understand that. There is some rationality to that. But ultimately, it's not only about the amount of money you're putting in. It's about learning how to invest your money properly. Because, you know, if you figure out the method of success, you know, over time, hopefully, you know, you'll get more money that you can invest, right? But if you never figure out how to do it, you're going to keep losing money over time and you'll never be able to accumulate money. So like, it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of, I like to go back to this poker analogy because it seems like so obvious when you get to a, when you get to a, when you get to a defined uh, game like poker, where it's like, you know, imagine somebody who every time they play poker, they just keep losing their whole stack. And you're like, hey, do you want to like read a book? Do you want to, you know, have some classes, something like that? And they just say, no, no, the game sucks. The game's rigged. I, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, they probably just stop playing the game. Well, you would think so, right? But if they keep coming back to it, like that, first of all, that is what a lot of people do, right? They get fed up with the market and they just quit. So that's right. what a lot of retail investors do. They take a really bad beating and then they go, oh, this game isn't for me. I'm out. Yeah, I mean, and and there's just some people who are just always sort of I don't want to say wired to look at the world from a negative lens, but like a lot of people I know, even when cannabis was first starting out, they'd be like, "Oh man, this is never going to work out. This is you know, it's never going to get legalized. This is never going to happen. You guys are wasting all your money. You shouldn't be doing this." Blah blah blah. Right? There's always going to be people who have that sort of view. And then um, now you're like, now what, mom? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Actually, it's like it's like mom half your portfolio is cannabis, just so you know. You're like, yeah. So it turns out I should have listened to you a couple way back when. Uh, that's too funny. No, sorry, you, but you're you're right. There are definitely people who are like no, uh, and so exactly pessimistic. Right? Exactly. And so like there's there's going to be people who have like investment opportunities that, that have presented to themselves. Uh, and it's always good. It's always good to have that that voice of like to be skeptical. But eventually you're going to have to realize that there is some level of risk. There is something that you're going to have to do in order to gain. Sorry, you're going to eventually have to pull the trigger and make that investment and then eventually um, 
either it's going to pan out or it's not, right? And if it pans out, you should know the reasons why it panned out. And if it doesn't pan out, you should know the reasons why it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's a that's a great point. And so that's part of what I was uh, what I was going to say here is you know the why, understanding the why of things that happen. So, um, I put here one of the the biggest mistakes retail investors make: a general lack of understanding and therefore a lack of conviction uh, when things go wrong. So. They can easily get shaken out when bad news hits. So because they buy in at precisely the wrong time, when things are going to the moon, then when when any kind of bad news hits, all those retail investors turn around and start selling. And then this retail investor is stuck because, you know, they don't understand, you know, why they got in in the first place. They don't understand what's going on. So it's it's easy for them to get shaken out and sell when they're down 20 or 30 percent. And you you know what? I th- I think you hit it on the nail, or sorry, I think you hit it right on the head. What you just said there—it's because they don't know what they're buying, and that's—I I shouldn't say they don't know what they're buying because sometimes this happens to me. Like I will buy—I'm the easiest person to sell to, right? <laughs> like if you give me a stock tip, I've already bought it. Like as you're telling me, I've already put a buy order in. Yeah. And yeah. you know when when the markets do pull back a little bit, I will sell. I will I'll look through my portfolio. Like, okay, I don't know this name. I don't know this name. I don't know this name. These are gambles. Take them off. Don't get me wrong. It's a very insignificant portion of my portfolio. If the thing doubles or triples, it's not like it's going to make my year. But if the thing goes to zero, it's also not going to be like you know I'm not going to smash my keyboard. <laughs> right. Um, but I like keyboard, to have a little fun a lot too. Of keyboard smashing going on. Oh, tons, tons. <laughs> but no it's it's uh so so with 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 that um uh sort of story in the back i was gonna say anecdotal story but it's not an anecdotal story um with that in the background it's like you know if you don't know what you own and you don't know why you own it and you know nothing about it and it's literally you know manish calls you and says hey buy the stock so you do Mm -hmm. then when it starts going down, the first thing I do is I call you and I'm like, hey, man, like, why did I buy this? And you're like, oh, I bought it for this, this, and this reason. And I'm like, no, man, you're out to get me. I know and you're I'm, trying to take I'm my like, money. Yeah, and I'm like, you're, you still hold that dog? I got rid of that day ago. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, dude, you actually bought that? That's what I sold it to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Abby, I, I, that was an illiquid stock. I needed somebody buying it, so I told you about it. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, like, but how many times have you been on the receiving end of that phone call, Manish, in the last little bit? receiving end of that phone call where you know someone's like oh hey like you know you're, you've done very well in your portfolio what are you looking at you're like well i'm looking at this name this name this name you don't know if oh, they bought then, it or not and then and when then it starts going down around. yeah they <laughs> called you and they're like why did you put me in this name you're like i didn't know i put you in this yeah name. exactly no that, i'm the i'm the master of that getting that phone call because um you know the, the especially the names that i play with are so volatile right and so when things go bad you know, you get the call and people are like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, <laughs> and this is part of what's so it like important about learning how retail investors think because retail investors can drive things up and down so easily right. on almost no reason. And technicals rule all day long over fundamentals in the short term, mm-hmm. right? So because of that, it's so key to try to understand the nature of the beast because that will give you, you know, not even that you need to have a perfect understanding of what's happening day to day, but it helps you, you know, deal with the volatility when you say, look, like the, the, the sector is volatile. We can go down 10% on any given name on any given day. It's not that crazy. Mm-hmm. 
It's just understanding the technical flows of how things work. Now, what you get more concerned about is when your stock is down 10%, but everything else is flat, right? Then that's not a sector issue. That is a stock-specific issue. So to me, that is like the ultimate test of your conviction is when your stock is going down. Uh, if there's some negative news, especially about the name, and everything else is flat or even going up. I mean, that really tests your resolve. And if you want to think about, you know, being, you know, rationally being irrational, a lot of people will just sell because they go, look, I don't know how bad this news is. I don't know how bad it will get for the stock. Let me dump it right now. Get out of the way. Take a 10% loss. This thing might end up going down 20, 30, 40% and I'll buy it back later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you see a lot of that in this industry and, uh, and it can work. I'm not knocking it, but it can also be a very dangerous game you know, when, when you're like, you know, locking in these losses because things can snap back right away. For sure. They can, they definitely can. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll take it one step further and I'll say that strategy you just talked about looking at the broader market or looking at the market and then looking at your portfolio, that's sometimes even a more advanced strategy than most people will look at. Most people will Mm. look at their positions and isolate them and say, why am I down so much? And then you've got to say, Hey, well, you know, look at these indexes. They're all down as well. And they're like, Oh, okay. Like, what does that mean? Right. Right. That happened literally two or two and a half weeks ago, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of has been happening as the bond yields have been going up where, you know, there, it could be one, just a broader market sell-off, mm-hmm. right? And that affects all the names. Um, there was also one where there was like a tech sell-off. So all of the tech names, like the big one, which is like SSPK, which is Silver Spike, which is going to be Weed Maps, mm-hmm. that one sold off really hard, where the rest of the, the cannabis names kind of did okay. There was one day where that happened. So all of tech was getting killed, but mm-hmm. cannabis was kind of insulated. So it was interesting to see things like that, where you're seeing a tech name get hammered, but the the cannabis industry was doing you know well overall, right? Yeah. So great point, Abby. That that might be that might be a good way of looking at it. Is not just looking at your names, but looking at you know context of what else is happening. Yeah, exactly. And that's so it's let, very important to do that. Yeah. Sir, sorry. Let, let's keep going because we're getting to the end here. So uh, one big mistake I would say is price insensitivity. Price insensitivity, where you're being driven by hype. So you see everybody saying, you know, ABC is the best. ABC is the best. Buy ABC now. Sundial is like a great example of this where people just started buying Sundial. No yeah. idea why. No mm-hmm. no clue why. But like they must have a fantastic IR marketing department because they're mentioned in the same breath all the time as Afria. You know, I don't have any particular love for Afria at its current valuation, but way better company than Sundial. I mean, Sundial is a real piece of crap. Um, but I, I also give kudos to them because they've taken advantage of this crazy run-up they've had and they just keep issuing equity nonstop. Um, and, and, you know, they've got like a huge war chest now, like over 800 million or something, mm-hmm. um, which they could theoretically use to buy some, you know, U.S. companies one day, right? So as an example of a company with over a billion shares that I don't know, even know if people know that, but um, people get in for the wrong reason. They get in because they go, oh, cannabis is great. They go buy this company at any price. They're super price insensitive. <laughs> uh, so they fall in love really quickly. But then, you know, their short attention span, They f- once it goes down, they forget it ever existed. And it's maybe they bog- sell it. Maybe they hold it. Exactly. It still boggles me that Sundial was able to raise that much capital. I mean, 
it's just the the beauty of the ATM, right? You have the ATM facility set up. People yeah. show up and drive the price up. You can sell into the strike. Yeah, yeah, and the banks love it, or the bankers love it because it's basically an annuity for them. They just clip a fee on it. And, and the and they've been doing raises too. I don't, like I don't know about Sunday in particular, but um, like I'm a Canaccord client, and I've been getting email after email of just like every LP is raising money. Yeah, and uh, you know I'm like, hey, good for them, I guess. You know, like I don't know who's buying it, but good for them. I have no idea. So moving on, um, alternating. I'm very guilty of this next one, by the way. Alternating between investing and trading, and this goes in when you know you don't really you have an idea of what you're doing. Um, you go in, you buy some stuff. It goes up twenty, thirty percent, and you go, oh, you, you know. Then it, you go, no, I'm not going to sell. Then it goes down another. Then it goes back down to where you bought it. You go, oh man, I should have, I should have sold it up there, and you know you get into the industry for a reason, but then. Um, you start being, you start getting into this mentality of like, oh, like if I perfectly time the ups and downs, I can make these huge swings on my money. Like I can make 20, 30, 40, 50%. And I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but that is just a different mentality. It's more of a trading mentality than an investing mentality. And maybe you can combine these two approaches and sort of trade around the core. We've talked Mm -hmm. about that before. But um, where you can get lost then is, first of all, by thinking that you can perfectly time these ups and downs, which is very difficult. But secondly, you know, selling something because it's up 30% and then it just keeps running, right? It just keeps running up and up and up and it just completely gets away from you. Mm -hmm. So you have Mm -hmm. to be careful if you're investing because of all these great uh, longer term cyclical things and you start selling, you know, taking big chunks back out of your portfolio because it's up 20 or 30%, you kind of have to be careful with what your goals are here. For sure. And you have to be, again, we've talked about this already, but you got to be very cognizant of what what it is that you actually own, right? With a lot of these companies, yeah. they might just be running up because of momentum. Um, yeah. One thing that I was like that somebody uh, sort of hammered in my head in small cap investing is that, yeah, like if you've got like a penny stock that's running, there is a possibility that I may hit two, three dollars, but there's, you know, that, that, it's it's a slim possibility, but it's there. But there's one hundred percent chance that it's going eventually going to go down to two cents one day. So take right. your profits when you can, right? And a lot of people have that mentality, and you know, you're under the belief that a lot of people have high graded their cannabis portfolio and are only holding cannabis names where they have revenue or they have assets or they have upside potential, right? There are still a lot of names. I think Alan Broxian actually put out a a, a post. From I think I think it was from New York Times or where well, it was from a, a very well established um, uh, uh, like a, a journal right mm-hmm. and it basically talked about all you know the scams and et cetera that, that sort of come up when these bubbles start to arise right. so people do have to be aware of that so you know if you do own a own a own a name that maybe the, this this company has no assets or maybe it has some assets, maybe it has a paper license, no revenue and the stock is running up I would start taking profits on names like that. And come back, maybe, you know, it doesn't matter if it runs up for so much and they start generating revenue, then buy back in. That's a different story then. Right, right. You're saying if a name is speculative and it runs, you know, take some money off the table and, you know, it can always come back to it, right? Right, because there are still speculative names in the cannabis space, right? Not every single cannabis name is um, like a GTI, truly, a Cresco, Air, like right. not, not one of those big ones, right? We've just been very fortunate in the last little bit to have these rock stars sort of emerge. 
Right. Right. And sorry, you, you make a great point that I almost forgot that I want to talk about is that the ability to, to kind of spot trends and extrapolate into the future. So part of what happens with retail investors, what I've noticed, especially in our industry is people will go online and they'll invest by consensus. So there's sort of look in the comment section and they'll say, who's the best. And then somebody will say Afria, somebody will say Cresco, somebody will say GTI and truly. And, you know, Abby, you and I have been around a long, uh, long enough that when we started, we were saying, man, these American names are so much better than the Canadian names. And people were like shouting us down saying, you know, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're a fudster. And I've never then, heard that term. <laughs> the fudster. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like you know, being a, a perma bear or something, you know, you're just shorting it or something, whatever. Oh, yeah. then we lived. Little did they know we don't know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then we lived through watching it flip on its head. I watch people go from US MSO suck to um, MSO okay, gang. <laughs> yeah. Now they're MSO gang, right? I'm like, yeah. oh, that's, that's funny, right? And, but one of the big mistakes I think people are making is they're only looking at that first tier of names. So mm-hmm. they, and this goes back to that, you know, the method to the madness. It's like they figure, look, I don't know that much about what I'm doing. But if there's a hundred or a thousand other people saying GTI is great, then GTI must be great. And if there's, you know, especially when they in, attract institutional capital, that helps validate that thesis. So, you know, am I going to have the best return on GTI? Maybe, maybe not. But I certainly feel good and I sleep well at night because all my other internet friends are saying that GTI is really good. Mm-hmm. Right. So I might not know that much, but if everyone else is saying that the odds feel good or I feel warm and fuzzy that that name is going to do really well. Now, I would right. point out to you, by the way, that if you rewind the clock two years, um, a lot of people were saying certain LPs were great that didn't pan out. So, you know, first of all, the crowd isn't always right. In fact, especially on echo chambers like Twitter and Reddit, the crowd is often wrong. That's mm-hmm. one. Um, number two, I would say that, you know, I think that the opportunity really being missed is the names that people don't know yet, but have similar footprints to the GTIs and Crescos, et cetera. And that's why names that you and I both like are like AYR and Columbia Care. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying they should trade at the same multiples as GTI, right? I think GTI deserves a premium, but should AYR trade at one third of the multiple as GTI. That doesn't make sense to me, right? Maybe it should trade at, you know, 75% or 80% of the multiple, but not 33%, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So like things like that to me, because I lived through the first iteration where I was like, am I crazy? Or is like truly not a fantastic financial operation that people are missing here. And then now seeing people like, being on that bandwagon and like telling, you know, me that I don't know what I'm talking about, about truly. It's like, you're like, oh, okay. Like I see how the wheel spins now. So the next iteration to get on, in my opinion, is like the next tier of MSOs that people haven't built the consensus hype train on yet. Right. That's like the next wave you can get on, in my opinion, where the next sort of easier money is going to be made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, like I would see that's, that's where I guess you're using that term easier money because you're aware 
of what that next hype, like that next uh, hype train of MSOs will eventually be. But I would say that's actually, you know, a stock pickers market or a market where the easy money is gone is because you have to do a little bit more due diligence now. Right. Yeah. You're, you're making a good point. I mean, the, t- to be fair, the easy money could be is when by when, GTI Cresco, that's the right. Easy that, money. that could be the easy money because when uplisting comes mm-hmm. right. And GTI is the first one out of the gate to uplist that stock could double or more. Mm-hmm. Right. And that could be to your point, Abby, that could be easy money. Um, for me, it's just more of, you know, company, the, the second tier of companies like AYR and Columbia, those guys just catching up in terms of multiple. Like they already have the footprint. They're already doing the hard work of scaling and ramping and integrating their M&A. That's the hard stuff, right? The mm-hmm. easy stuff is just people realizing like, oh yeah, like, you know, like it's not just four MSOs and then everyone else is garbage. It's like, right. There's value. A dollar of EBITDA from AYR is not that different from a dollar of EBITDA from GTI. No, exactly. Exactly. Right. Again, there's some premium you give to GTI, but you don't give two or three times the premium for just just being, you know, having a good name. Yeah, I think I think you raise a valid, valid point. And I think we need to do an episode on the next iteration of MSOs. Like, I really think we need to talk about, um, you know, the, I guess I guess the way you said it, the next iteration of MSOs and not sure, just AYR. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no, f- fair enough. So let's just wrap it up here. Last two things I think are really important are um, being easily distracted by the noise, right? And it's usually media driven. And an example is, you know, a month ago or two months ago, all we were talking about was GameStop, um, which I love to talk about, by the way. It's like a phenomenal entertainment topic. <laughs> I know, buddy. but I know. We all you know. know. Yeah, yeah, Abby knows firsthand. But, you know, I recognize that as entertainment, right? And what it means, it doesn't mean that much to my portfolio and my investment thesis, right? It's important because it gives you some information on how the general market is behaving, but I'm not like, I'm going to sell all of my stocks now because, you know, GameStop is surging, Mm -hmm. right? Similarly, um, now everyone's talking about bond yields, right? And how bond yields are going from 1% to 2%. And how that's affecting, that's a headwind on the equity market. Mm-hmm. Totally true. But I don't think medium to longer term that really matters for cannabis investors. Like I think it's a obviously short term, it has real impacts, but it's not really affecting my cannabis investing strategy because these companies aren't borrowing at you prime know what? rates. Exactly. And I, I would actually say the opposite. I mean, if bond yield if like if the bond yield does start uh, affecting the cannabis market that's a buying opportunity pick it up pick up these names at a discount and like not to get too technical but if you start think like in the future as rates go up um you know this is said to affect growth companies but to me like money should get reallocated from companies with these like sky high multiples to companies that have more reasonable multiples and are still growing rapidly. Right. And the and reality is there's not many sectors like that except for cannabis. No, and look, you make you, you, you make a really great point here, especially with the bond uh, the bond yields. A lot of people sort of equate it to corporate 
you know, the, the cost of corporate debt going up. Well, guess what? If the cost of corporate debt goes up from one to 2%, that's still 10% cheaper than what cannabis companies are paying. Totally. Totally. So, We're not borrowing with the prime rates, right? It has no, nothing to do with God, no. In fact, our rate of borrowing will come down. Exactly. If that's what I'm trying to up. say. That's what yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah. hundred percent. So like if, if, if the 10 year actually starts affecting the cannabis sector, that's a great, that's a buying signal. Pick them up. And, and again, to that last point of that irrationality, it's like people can sort of rationalize, well, okay, yes, all the things, Abby, you just said are true, but stocks are going to go down now. So I'll sell now and I'll buy it back when it's a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. And again, if you can do that game well, congrats. I tried doing that. I got railroaded by it. I ain't doing it again. Right. But to each their own, like I've just identified the game that I'm playing and I'm going to stick to it. I, I have a good, better idea now of what I'm good at and I've learned from my mistakes and I'm not going to try to, you know, play a game that I'm not that good at. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Last thing I would say is time. Um, mm-hmm. Retail typically has a super short time horizon. They get distracted easily. They see a name, they buy it. They, they love action. And if I go back to this metaphor of, you know, the, the guy or gal who's like five, six drinks deep and sits down to the poker table, why they're usually kind of an easy fish is because they come there, they want entertainment, they want action. So it doesn't matter the cards that are being dealt to them. They're going to try to play aggressively and try to, you know, play some hands because they want the action. Whereas the disciplined player, if nothing's happening, they're not getting cards, nothing interesting's happening, they fold, right? They yep. wait. So retail loves the action. They love to buy a stock and then it suddenly goes up 10%, right? It's like that, that hit, it's like crack. And that's the, the feeling they kind of search for. So it's not that interesting for them if you buy something and then it slowly goes up day over day for the next couple of years. They want that. It's that casino mentality of wanting that quick hit. And unfortunately, that's a big mistake because usually those are hype-based and momentum-based trades. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like a Ponzi scheme where it's like, not to say it's fr- it is a Ponzi scheme, but it, it's like one in that more people have to keep coming in after you to drive the price up, and at some point it could crash. You mean like when you get stocks that just go parabolic up? Well, the reason this person's getting involved is because they just read some article on it. There's oh, article, gotcha, yeah. Promotion yeah, yeah. happening, and then it goes up next day 10%, and you're like, oh my God, this is going to keep happening. Right? Yeah. But in reality, it's like there's three waves of investors, and you were the second wave. And now mm. the third wave is coming in. And if there's not another wave after that, the price is going to correct. Right. Yeah, that makes right? sense. So, but it's hard for you to sell because you're like, oh my God, it's going to keep going up 10% a day. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it hard, right? That casino mentality. Yeah, um, that and, makes sense. And then lastly, overly concerned with the short term, miss out on the longer term opportunities. And in this, like for example, in our industry, right now I see a lot of people saying, hey, where are the catalysts going to come from? Maybe we should sell and wait and buy it back. I say, okay, maybe. But, you know, uplisting could come kind of out of nowhere. You know, New York could legalize. Like, we never know when the catalysts are going to hit. So I'm not selling today to try to buy it back a little bit cheaper. You know, if the price goes down, I'll buy. But if you're fully invested, maybe you should trim some, right? There is that idea. You kind of have to figure out what works for you. For sure. And, and to that, like, I would, you know, I would, I, I wouldn't fall under that school of thought. But I mean, if you start thinking about how we used to think back in 2018, um, 
when we would look at financials, we would look at burn rates, right? Totally. Be like this company's going to run out of cash by this much. That was a that was a like a headwind that you were sort of facing into. These US MSOs don't have those headwinds anymore. They don't need to finance. That's what makes them so attractive. These companies well, and, can survive. Right. And if when they do financing, a lot of times the price is going up because it's validating the price. It's capital for M&A. It's not a negative story anymore. It's not, I have exactly. to raise this money or I'm going to die. So I have to give really you know dilutive, desperate financing. Exactly. So now you, you've sort of eliminated some of these headwinds and the tailwinds or the catalysts are still on the horizon. Right. 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 Even so, more so. Exactly. So it doesn't make sense now to be like, hey, I'm going to sell and, and, and maybe hope for a pullback. Because if you're hoping for a pullback, then I would just say stay invested. And if the stock pulls back, pick some more up and lower your cost base that way. You don't have to be buying and selling. You don't have to you, have to, you don't have to go to the sidelines anymore to sort of shield yourself from like a falling knife. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. Not to say it can't pull back, but. Oh, no. It can, yeah, exactly. I, I'm not yeah. saying that it can't pull back at all. But right. I'm just saying you don't that... want to miss a larger opportunity. At least I don't want to miss a larger opportunity. Mm-hmm. exactly okay to wrap it up so we've touched on a lot of the points we've touched on kind of what not to do how to avoid this in general guys <laughs> this is from a, a long time ago learn 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 and pay attention the mm-hmm. race is long you need to invest in yourself invest in your learning for the long term um, build a network talk to investors in different asset classes and learn how they think you know if you talk to people who do bond investing uh, although they're you know maybe not readily available, but talk to people who do mortgages, they think so differently from equity investors, but they think in terms of not losing money. And I'm not saying you should think that way, but it's useful to understand how they think and incorporate that into your thinking. Uh, discipline, this is like a really, really important one. Put yourself on a budget. I'm only gonna spend, you know, if you have, you know, a dollar to be able to invest and that's all the money you have for the year, put yourself on a budget. I, even though I'm really excited, I'm only going to invest 25 cents every quarter, right? Like break it up and force yourself to make hard choices and make, you know, so that forces you to make, you know, buy the best thing you really want to buy as opposed to just buying everything, mm-hmm. right? Discipline, break up your investments over time, due diligence, force yourself to dig into a company before you invest. Right, have some criteria. Before I invest, I have to know what the fully diluted share count is. I have to know who the CEO is. I have to know what the revenue multiple is of the last quarter. Mm-hmm. Right? Like give yourself some criteria of stuff you need to know before you're willing to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, time. Right? Uh, take a longer horizon. You know, one month is not a long time period in any real type of investing. No, it definitely isn't. Follow companies over a longer horizon because Sure, you heard about it today because you read some article or somebody on Reddit told you, but if that's a real company, they're still going to be here over time. Uh-huh. So if you know the prices are going crazy today, maybe take a breath or buy a little bit and watch it over time. And in this industry, you often get more opportunities to add to your positions over a period of time. You right. get a lot of pullbacks and volatility in this industry. Take advantage of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think those are, those, are, those are good things to live by. Absolutely. All right, guys, that is Understanding the Retail Investor. As always, thanks for listening. CINpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time.
This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.